happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light 'em up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows out of This is Jennifer Stone with Stones Throw. Today is Tuesday, January the first, two thousand and thirteen. Happy New Year, Jerry Gross says. Happy New Year. So I guess I should follow her fine example. It is time to review our notes, boys and girls. That's the time of year we do a, a synthesis. Right, the end is in the beginning, and yet we go on. Right, lists. Everybody's making lists, resolutions. Ah, uh, oh. I wonder. Yes. I wonder what choices we will make. Do we have any choices? Yes. I used to spend New Year's Eve burning my old manuscripts, trying to find, uh, uh, you know, the 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 little the little synthesis, the little um, oh gosh, what do we call it? Uh, uh, the um, the analect, the story, something that says it all in a phrase. But of course, too late for that now.、Um, I got a big rubber stamp that says "abandoned," and I'll just stamp that on everything that I didn't finish. I hope、um, that those of you who still strive to thrive, I hope you can get organized.、Uh, It's too late for me. Yes, I hope you can fight the good fight. Ishmael Reed says writing is fighting. You know Hemingway and a lot of other guys say that too. Even some women say that. Gertrude Stein says so. She knows how it goes. I love Gertrude Stein on the struggle to communicate. Here's my favorite passage. Yes,、uh, uh, said, Ralph Nader said we can think in paragraphs. I guess this is a Gertrude Stein paragraph.、Uh, she writes, "Disillusionment in living is the finding out nobody agrees with you, not those that are and were fighting with you. Disillusionment in living is the finding out nobody agrees with you, not those that are fighting." For you, complete disillusionment is when you realize that no one can, for they can't change. The amount they agree is important to you until the amount they do not agree with you is completely realized by you. Then you say you will write for yourself 
and strangers. You will be for yourself and strangers. And this, then, makes an old man or an old woman of you. Um, I love that passage because, of course, here at KPFA, I do speak to a lot of strangers. And the, uh, the wonderful side of that is that very often they write to me and they are no longer strangers. Uh, it's actually very, very positive. Yes, very positive. It's not disillusioning at all. Uh, <laughs> I, I was thinking of that. Last night, that the great communicators, I'm never sure how much we communicate here at KPFA. Today, the great ones, the those who speak truth to power, the voices in the world, I think they're mostly stand-up comedians. Uh, you know, that's the last place where there's space for truth. You know, honesty is the work of a lifetime. These days... Uh, Written words, printed words are suspect. There are damn good reasons for that. We need to see the speaker. We need to um, uh, see the soul. Look at the body language of a woman or a man. This week I've been obsessed with the mother of a young black comedian... Eddie Griffin, he's a body. I don't know whether I should recommend him on KPFA because he, um, well, he's technically obscene, I guess. I don't care myself, but uh, he uh, <laughs> he is so, what's the word, um, uh, scatological, I guess, that his mother's expression is pretty devastated. Uh, there's a program on cable if you are interested. It has uh, Eddie Griffin's stage show, and they intersperse it with scenes that include his mother. Uh, he calls this his dysfunctional family show, right? The dysfunctional family with cockeyed spelling. Uh, we see his uncle, a man who spent most of his life incarcerated, uh, the old man is um, philosophical, but his chagrin is nothing to Eddie's mom. Her overwhelming angst just knocked me on my ear. I kept looking at her and I kept thinking of Barack Obama's mother-in-law. Now, that's that's not a nice connection. I mean, I don't know whether it's nice or not, but I just thought about the mothers of all these guys, uh... You know, every point of the uh, star, every at every stage or age, uh, most of the scenes in which Eddie Griffin's mother is the center of attention are just dramatic reenactments of the fights she had with her son. Uh, the great love, her passion, is expressed by her fury with this uh, young man. I think what she does is what we used to call wilding. I think the the phrase is she gives it to him upside his head. Uh, Eddie dedicates the show to his grandmother. <laughs> I don't know why this image stays with me. I guess because it is the most what is it not 
just the most profound, but the most moving thing I've seen on television in decades. Uh, I think of that woman as the face of America in the 21st century. Her profound pride, as well as the chagrin, she recognizes her own persona in her son's performance. Uh, his raw sexual jokes all about oral sex, that kind of thing. Not the sort of thing that most young men can handle. Uh, well, I was thinking of my own sons and uh, their response to anything I did on stage. Oh, dear me. Uh, it isn't that they're prudes. I don't mean that. Of course, they're not prudes. It's just that, as as my oldest son once said when I jumped on the swing at the children's park, he said, the mothers don't swing. Anyway, uh, at his show, there's a lot of stuff about gender hypocrisy. Anyway, gender confusion, maybe, but uh, his whole rap sets Freud on his ear. Uh, his mother, of course, is his creatrix, his matrix. <laughs> and she cannot revoke him. She cannot take him back. That's what I see in her expression. You know, she's been and gone and done this. Uh, who gave those boys the keys to their cars, what I always ask. Who gave these young fellows the power to rule the world? And what are they doing with this gigantic gift, uh, the gift of life and woman's love? His act is actually not very specific about anything. Uh, uh, there's some hints dropped, actually. He's honest, but what is that? Uh, you know, it's the lie that tells the truth. His biological father was conventional. That is not available. Uh, once he was available... Well, uh, uh, Eddie Griffin's unbelievable capacity to face down his runaway dad, at least on the stage, in performance, uh, is a real shocker. I thought of Dick Gregory saying many, many years ago, he said, runaway fathers will inherit the wind. Griffin mentioned somewhere a white father, but I suppose that could be real, some metaphor, maybe a real person or a poetic statement about this creole arrangement or society about our new age, multi-racial, pan-racial, or anyway, uh, what is that, um, rainbow, rainbow age. I think of all the liberated folks who really and truly do not define themselves by their color or gender or race or sexual um, choices. Uh, no, that's right. It's not a choice. Anyway, they don't even define themselves by class. Now, that's that's something really new. Uh of course, the the bulk, the mass of the culture, the society, uh, still has hardening of the categories. Um, I don't think there's, what is it? Uh, I don't think there's any chance that men can be honest about their relationships with their mothers. It's it's probably the last, the last taboo or one of the last ones. Uh, the anima. The woman within, the internalized 
woman, um, the one who raised you. I think of the president's father, Barack Obama's dad from Kenya. Talk about the story of our time, the mythos, the theme, the the backstory maybe. I think of Barack Obama as a kind of template for this new age. Eddie Griffin is another <laughs> an entirely different product of our brave new world. The more I watched and the more I thought about it, I decided that this year, maybe it was time once again to have a drink. So I had a little one, just a short one. <laughs> just, just, a, just a sip. Uh, then I realized that this year, the truth is, I'm scared to death. I had a real attack of existential terror. Free-floating anxiety, along with these disaster de jour events. You know, every day there's something that seems to be more than we can uh, integrate. Was it 60 children crushed uh, this morning as I was leaving the house? I heard the news on uh, radio, horrific accidents. Uh I said to myself, well, it's less terrifying than than malevolent actions, uh, what the children say, something done on purpose, you know, by madmen. But still, the, uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse are riding hard 24-7, seven billion of us and counting. I'm even afraid to think about Hillary Rodham Clinton, uh, so much frailty everywhere we look. Uh, those of us who are old sometimes feel not exactly guilty, but a little ashamed. I mean, what right do we have to worry about our own survival at this stage of the game? I suppose it's just that uh, once we reach... Uh, the age that I have reached, let's see, I was 79, just before Christmas, you know. Uh, once you reach that stage, you become hyper-aware that every moment may be your last uh, and serves you, right? Yes, it's a funny old world. You'll be lucky if you get out of it alive. I still keep trying and wringing my hands. What is it Samuel Beckett says? All my life long, I have dreamt of the moment when, edified at last, in so far as one can be, before all is lost, I might draw the line and make the tote. <laughs> yes. Add it all up until it means something, or narrow it down till it means something. Uh, never mind all that. Last night I wrote all these wonderful things about time and, and, uh, loss, and I think they're a little bit corny, and they've probably been done on all the other, uh, media outlets, you know. Uh, I wish they'd stop going over and over all the obits. Uh, let's face it, uh, I think we should deal with the living. And uh, 
Yes, let the dead past bury its dead. Ha ha. What is it? The past isn't dead. Hell, it isn't even past. That's my favorite line. It accumulates, folks. Whatever, whatever was, is. Anyway, uh, last night I went back into my notes and I did, I did, uh, pull out my pages about writers and what they drank and why they drank and uh, actually why they've stopped drinking a lot of them interesting isn't it uh, I was raised in a ocean of alcohol a sea of alcohol and it's wonderfully liberating not to be uh, what's the word uh, <laughs> three sheets to the wind as they used to say uh on New Year's Eve, uh, I reconsider. Every year I reconsider. I I do think that, you know, the drinking goes with scribbling, but I think that was for the people for whom writing, uh, what is it, it went with high anxiety. Now I think of writing as kind of a painkiller. Kind of spills out. I'm ashamed of these sloppy notebooks that I have these days. I used to try so hard to at least make make things neat. You know, neatness counts. <laughs> but most of the writers, uh, most of the writers in the past, the romantic writers anyway, were junkies. You know, Elizabeth Barrett Browning was certainly a junkie. That kind of thing. Uh, all the literati, all the poets, yes, all poets are lushes, but not all lushes are poets. We've had a few sober poets and more and more sober writers, although not, not, not in Ireland, uh, with the notable exception of George Bernard Shaw. George was pure spirit, so he didn't need any. I, I always think in simple similes to begin with, you know, the writer as a drink. Here we go. Yes, I had Henry Miller down as dark beer with a chaser and Thomas Mann as after dinner brandy on an empty stomach and Anais Nin as strong, sweet, distilled liqueur, that sort of thing. Okay, then I had another cup of wine. All right, I had that... Uh, Oh, it's wonderful. It's a sweet wine. I've forgotten the name of it. Uh, I began to visualize. I began to see the writers drinking. And sometimes, why? Why? Why did Jane Austen sip lemon tea with minted leaves? Sometimes looking out the window into the trees. Carlette swallowed sweet breakfast chocolate. Absinthe stains on the bedside table. An aperitif in the afternoon, on the sly, in a cafe he never frequents. Virginia Woolf, out for a treat, but only once a week. She went for a long walk first, and then had scones to go with it, right? Virginia Woolf, Virginia Woolf in the shadow... The demonic shadow, that's what frightens me, right? The demonic shadow that Carl Jung tells us all about. 
That's what haunts me now. I think Virginia Woolf was right to be afraid, very afraid. The dark side of human nature is certainly no less natural to us than its enlightened or sane aspect it drives nations and individuals mad. Everywhere we look. Of course, there's never been a time in history when it was not so. Maybe it's because there's so many of us now. Somebody said good is what happens when evil takes a rest. It's not resting this week. Uh, it's like the trough of a wave. There is a time of peace. Peace and then thoughtful consideration and then evil gathers itself up and comes crashing down. A wave crashes over us again. You know, there's this shadow, the one that hung over the fascists. It's coming back, driving so many people to kill anyone, anyone who crosses their paranoid path. It's a shadow within all of us, not just the mad ones. On lucid nights, it is particularly visible to the romantic poets you know, the wicked people of this world, they project their shadow onto others. They use other people as scapegoats. There's always a blame game going on. You remember, we had a homicidal Hitler. He blamed the Jews and used their deaths to alleviate his fears. Virginia uh, was not homicidal. She was suicidal. She didn't kid herself. Her tragic enlightenment led her to suicide. She knew the only way to destroy the shadow within was to destroy herself. I'm interested in this new trend towards the homicidal, suicidal, uh, the, the double whammy that so many of the mad people seem to be uh, indulging in. Never mind, let's get back to the writers. I just, I just love the notion of uh, drinking with the writers of the past. I think of the enlightened ones like George Sand smoking little cigars. And she drank whatever he was pouring. And uh, she watered her drinks down so she could write while he was sleeping. All right, Sigrid Unset. Oh, the mead of medieval myth. A Nordic maiden. Oh, what a trip she was. George Eliot took tea with the usual toast, but no liquor, no liquor. The party's over at her house. He drank, of course, but finally only when she did. It was love without marriage. No fooling. Actually, I got a little lurid when I got to the Brontes. I uh, went out on my balcony and looked at the uh, the uh, fireworks going off in San Francisco. I thought of the the moors, the north of yes, the north of England. I haven't been there. I've got to go. I just want to visit the Victorian ghosts. Aha! Uh -huh. 
I had an acute attack of brontephobia. Bronte means thunder. Oh, I'm terrified of the Brontes, Heathcliff, and the rest of them. Uh, I I equate them with Carl Jung. Uh, actually, I think Emily Bronte taught Carl Jung everything he knew. Uh, once in a dream, I saw Emily Bronte slicing tomatoes. She threw them at me. She took the largest slice and dropped it over her head. All the seeds turned to gemstones. Wet red swam around her in a cloak. The laughter of Pan poured from her throat. Oh, boy, for my sake, oh, for my sake, Charlotte, Emily, and Anne, please take a real drink like simple Irishmen. Put away those spirits of ammonia, that treacle sin syrup laced with hot chocolate desire. Oh, there's nothing as erotic as banked fires. I remember when I first started writing for the women's magazines, I wrote and wrote about Emily Bronte, and I found that um, she was not popular <laughs> back in the 1970s. Apparently, uh, well, Sylvia Plath was a better choice for uh, being, what is that? She was self-destructive. Emily was, of course, just a victim of uh, tuberculosis and uh, maybe we could call it psychic exhaustion. Uh, anyway, uh, let's see. Where's the rest of my list? Ernest Hemingway, Bourbon on the Rocks. What do I know? Whatever he was drinking, it wasn't that that killed him. Uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald, the drink that fires the dream, it burns the body alive. Dylan Thomas, beer for breakfast and any and everything else. Never took coffee or tea, bitters all day. Real booze when the work is done, the reward, right? Uh, Gertrude Stein preferred food to drink. She served alphabet vegetable soup. Beef tenderloin for those who eat words. Each one as she may. That's what she wrote, yes. Each one as she may. Yes, there it is, she said. I have had to do what I have had to do. I have had to be what I have had to be. I could never be one of two, I could never be two in one, as married couples do and can. I am but one, all one, one and all one. I love Gertrude Stein's idea of uh, kith. She wasn't interested in her kin. She said, yes, she said feudal times were the times of the fathers. She she said that family identity was the identity she could do without. That's what I think. I think that Sylvia Plath could have done very well if she had simply, uh, what is that, left her family, and that includes her husband, Ted Hughes. But, of course, he was a more powerful witch than she was. Warlock, whatever they call it, he was um, in touch with the old gods, the Chthonic pagan gods. 
Oh, Isaac Denison, time in the history of the heart of ancient woman. She could smell the sea of Africa before the land rose. Toni Morrison. Pack up all your cares and woes. Bye-bye, Blackbird. Oh, I wish I had time. I have about 25 more writers, but that's okay. Ah, let me end with with Shakespeare himself and with the bard. Oh, churl, drunk all and left no friendly drop to help me after, I will kiss thy lips. Haply some poison yet doth hang on them to make me die. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air next Tuesday, God us willing. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. speeches and political promises frustrated that your message isn't being heard and eager to let it out well now you've got a place to do so the 27th annual western workers labor heritage festival january 18th 19th and 20th that's martin luther king weekend at the machinist hall 1511 rollins road in burlingame on stage will appear martin luther king's opening act jimmy collier motown labor diva lynn marie smith the Seattle Labor Chorus, and many others as we sing the good songs and engage with the culture, art, film, theater, and heritage that is the American labor movement. You can Google Western Workers for more information. Proceeds benefit the Western Workers Labor Heritage Festival. This event is wheelchair accessible and is sponsored by KPFA.